Well, good morning, everybody. Today we are finally here. I've been looking forward to this message for a little bit. We are in chapter four of the book of Jonah. It's kind of felt to me at least like this, like we've been waiting to get to chapter four because this is when in the story, as we're gonna see, it all comes to a head and, and it's kind of like the climax of the entire book. So I'm excited to get into it. Before we open up and read chapter four though, it's, it's worth just kind of bringing us up all on to, uh, bringing us up to speed on what exactly has happened so far in the story. Uh, so let me just kind of recap the story of Jonah so far. Jonah was a rebellious, not very good at his job prophet, okay? To put it very simply, uh, Jonah was a prophet of God who was called by God to, to bring a specific message to the evil, wicked city of Nineveh. And so Jonah, he, uh, he goes the other way. He just basically says, no, peace out, I'm not doing that. And he gets on a boat headed for Tarshish, the other side of the world, and he's on his way, and, and God sends a thunderstorm, a huge thunderstorm on the, on the sea uh, to try to uh, get Jonah's attention. And long story short, Jonah gets thrown overboard. Uh, he gets rescued by God through this uh, giant fish and brought back so that he can bring his message to Nineveh. It's this whole crazy story. Jonah finally goes to Nineveh, and when he gives his message through gritted teeth, very grumbly, not very happy about it, it works. Like Jonah gives this message to wicked Nineveh and boom, like that, they change their ways. They turn around and they completely repent. And so when that happens, well, well, we're gonna find out what happens next because Jonah is about to show us how he feels about that change of God's plans. God was gonna destroy Nineveh, but now he's not. How does Jonah feel about that? That's what we're looking at today. So go ahead and grab your Bibles. <clears throat> Excuse me, turn with me to Jonah chapter four. It's gonna be page 764 in the House Bibles. Uh, while you're turning there, I just wanna remind you uh, how we've been approaching this book, how we've approached this story of Jonah through this series. We are looking at this story as a parable, a parable. Now, now a parable, it's, it's written in a way to get our attention, right? To get, to get us thinking, to get us scratching our chins and wondering about our own lives. That's what a parable is. And so I believe, we believe that Jonah is written in that way. Whether it's a <clears throat> historical story that really happened or whether it's, it's more of a fable or fictional story, doesn't really matter because the, the story as a parable speaks directly to our lives, okay? That's why we're looking at it in this way. So let me pray for us, and then we're going to read how Jonah feels about God's change of plans. Father God, as we open up your word yet again, and as we continue and conclude this, this series on Jonah, I pray that you would speak. Speak clearly to us through the power of your Holy Spirit. I pray in these moments that we would have ears to hear what you have to say for, to us, uh, and I pray that we both as a church and as individuals would leave this time uh, changed, that we'd be different people because of what we've heard from you. Uh, Father, I pray that I would simply disappear in these moments and that your Holy Spirit would remain. Would you speak? We are listening. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, so Jonah chapter 4. Uh, I'm actually going to read one verse before to kind of bring us up to speed. When God saw what they had done, what Nineveh had done, and how they put a stop to their evil ways, he changed his mind and did not carry out the destruction he had threatened. Now this change of plans greatly upset Jonah, and he became very angry, so he complained to the Lord about it. 
didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? This is, that's why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you're a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry, filled with unfailing love. You are eager to turn back from destroying people. So just kill me now. Kill me now, Lord. I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted will not happen. And the Lord replied, is it right, is it right for you to be angry about this? Okay, we'll stop there for now. At this point in the story, uh, as I kind of mentioned, this is the climax of the story, the tension has reached something of a boiling point. And I love the way that the author unveils things. I think this is just so interesting. For the first time, frankly, in the whole book, we get a really clear understanding of why Jonah fled in the first place, why he didn't want to go bring the message to Nineveh. Uh, yes, he was scared. Of course, anybody would be scared bringing a message like this to a city as terrifying as this. But he says it himself. He fled because he understands the character of God. That's why he ran away. Look at verse two. He says, I knew that you were a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. Now, this formulation of words, the way that Jonah puts this, this is actually a very common refrain in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament. You see this uh, over and over again. For example, Joel 2, return to the Lord your God, for he is merciful and compassionate, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. He's eager to relent and not punish. Or Psalm 145, the Lord is merciful and compassionate, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. The Lord is good to everyone. He showers compassion on all his creation. Now those are just two examples. I could give you a lot more. That same set of phrases and words shows up more than 10 times, almost verbatim in the Old Testament. To the Israelites, it's clear that this, these sets of ideas were, were central to the character of God. And Jonah gets it. I mean, he says it himself. He, he repeats it word for word. God is compassionate. God is slow to anger, filled with unfailing love. But here's the rub. Here's the rub. Normally, those attributes of God would be the kinds of things people would want to praise God for, right? There were, these are good, it's a good thing that God is compassionate. Normally people would want to praise God, but not Jonah. These are not good things in Jonah's mind. No, Jonah thinks God is making a mistake. He thinks that, that having compassion on Nineveh is, is going to embarrass God, maybe. Maybe he thinks that God's being weak, I mean, if I could put words into Jonah's mouth, I imagine him saying, look, this enemy nation, God, has spat in your face time and time again. They've spread evil and, and, and destruction in the world, and you're just gonna what? You're gonna forgive them? You're just gonna let them, let them walk away scot-free? They deserve to be wiped off the face of the planet, and you're just gonna let them live on. I knew it. Like I said, this moment is the climax of the whole book. It's when all the cards are on the table and we see Jonah's motivation laid bare. We see Jonah out in the clear. He's not just afraid of bringing God's message to Nineveh. No, he thinks God is in the wrong for sending him in the first place. And bottom line, God's behavior is not lining up with Jonah's theology. Think about that for a second. God's behavior is not lining up with Jonah's theology and he is ticked. 
He's ticked about it. He's upset. He's furious. I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted will not happen. So let's go on. Let's go on because it's not over yet. Verse 5. Then Jonah went out to the east side of the city and made a shelter to sit under as he waited to see what would happen to the city. And the Lord God arranged for a leafy plant to grow there. And soon it spread its broad leaves over Jonah's head, shading him from the sun. This eased his discomfort, and Jonah was very grateful for the plant. But God also arranged for a worm. The next morning at dawn, the worm ate through the stem of the plant so that it withered away. And as the sun grew hot, God arranged for a scorching east wind to blow on Jonah. The sun beat down on his head until he grew faint and wished to die. Death is certainly better than living like this, he exclaimed. Then God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry because the plant died? Yes, Jonah retorted, even angry enough to die. We get it, we get it. Then the Lord said, you feel sorry about the plant, though you did nothing to put it there. It came quickly and it died quickly. But Nineveh, has more than 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness, not to mention all the animals. Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? So, okay, God is going to spare Nineveh, but on the off chance that he changes his mind again, Jonah wants to be there with a front row seat, right? He sets up shop on the hill overlooking Nineveh because he wants to see the fireworks. If God does decide to destroy the city, he wants to, he wants to see it, okay? So he's gonna do that. And, and he sets up a little shelter for himself and, and you know, starts bemoaning the hot sun. This is where God provides Jonah with an object lesson, an object lesson, sort of actually kind of like a parable within a parable, all right? This, this whole parable of this leafy plant, so again, Jonah's built this little shelter for himself uh, to get some relief from the hot sun, but, but it's not doing much for him, clearly. He's miserable, but then God provides this, this leafy plant to, to give Jonah shade. Now, in case you're curious, I guess there are some, some uh, hints in the Hebrew of what plant we were supposed to be imagining with all of this. It's the, it's the castor oil plant. Uh, I, I was deep in Wikipedia this week trying to figure this out. Look, that's, that's what it looks like, presumably. What we're supposed to be imagining with this leafy plant, that doesn't matter at all. I just thought you'd find that interesting. Uh, also, ricin comes from castor oil. I learned so much on Wikipedia. Anyway, okay. Regardless, Jonah is very happy about the plant, okay? In Hebrew, it literally says he rejoices. He rejoices about the plant. This dude is a basket case of emotions. He's all over the place, right? He's thrilled about this plant until what happens? God sends a worm, a worm which destroys the plant, so Jonah's back in the baking sun. And I I love this little detail in verse 8. After making the plant wither, God adds insult to injury, doesn't he? Because he sends a scorching east wind to just kind of seal the deal. Like, all right, you're, you're going to be really miserable now. Jonah again wishes he was dead. Death is certainly better than living like this. And right then is when God springs his trap, so to speak, his, his trap. He asks Jonah, is it right for you to be angry because the plant died? Now, if you remember just a few verses before, God asks Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about me sparing Nineveh? But there, Jonah doesn't respond. But about the plant? Oh yeah, he's got an opinion about that one. He's got an answer. Yeah, I'm angry enough to die. That's how I feel. And this is when the parable of the wilting plant, so to speak, comes into full effect. 
Because hidden beneath all of what we've been reading here is a little bit of Hebrew wordplay. And so it's really awesome, and I'm going to geek out for a second here, but it's very important to understanding uh, Jonah chapter 4. So bear with me. We're going to dive into some really nerdy world of the text, world behind the text stuff, because it's really important. All right, so let's talk about the Hebrew word ra. Okay, ra. This is the Hebrew word for bad. Or, or it has a lot of meanings, disagreeable, inferior in quality, sometimes by extension, evil or disastrous. That's Ra. In the Old Testament, Ra refers to everything from scrawny, defective cows to the grief of a father uh, to, uh, I mean, evil actions that people commit, things that are bad, the opposite of good. Right? And remember, in, in the, the theology of the Old Testament, God has designed creation to be good, very good, in fact. So Ra, Ra is anything that falls short of God's good intentions. It's, it's anything that falls short, including, including God's judgment, God's judgment. You see, Ra can also be used to describe the distress or misery or calamity that, that someone experiences whenever God hands them over to their own bad desires. You see, that's how judgment works in the Bible. They, people do Ra, they do bad, and they experience Ra, experience bad as a result, right? They do bad, they experience bad. They do Ra, they experience Ra. For example, the Egyptians, uh, in, the, in the story of Exodus, when the Israelites are enslaved in Egypt, uh, you know, God wants the Israelites to be freed. He tells Pharaoh, hey, let my people go through Moses, uh, but, but Pharaoh doesn't do that. And so God sends plagues, which are described in the Old Testament as Ra, they're bad, they're, they're judgment, they're disaster, right? That's not what God desires for Egypt. No, God wants good for Egypt. He wants the Egyptians to make the right choice but they are choosing bad. They're choosing the Ra of their world, and Ra is what they get in return. Now, here's why I bring all this up. In the book of Jonah, this word, Ra, has been used several times already. In chapter one, God tells Jonah to speak out against Nineveh because I have seen how Ra its people are, how, how wicked is how our Bibles translate that. I've seen how Ra they are. The city, in other words, does not reflect the goodness of God. It reflects the opposite. It's full of injustice and violence. It is full of Ra, just like the Egyptians. Well, a little bit later in the, in the terrible storm on the sea, the sailors ask this. They say, why has this Ra come down on us? Why has this calamity, this awful storm, why has it come down on us? See, this storm is a judgment of God against Jonah and the sailors are all caught up in it. Why has this raw happened to us? And then we come to chapter three and we read this. When God saw what Nineveh had done and how they had put a stop to their raw, their evil ways, he changed his mind and did not carry out the raw, the destruction that he had threatened. Again, when you do raw, you experience raw. You do bad, you experience bad. That's the, the judgment of God in Scripture. But now, God is sparing Nineveh from the Ra that they deserved. You see, that is the grace of God. You do Ra, you experience Ra, that's God's judgment. You're spared from the Ra you deserve, that's God's grace. 
So now we come to chapter four and this whole mysterious weird plant in the worm. Here's what verse six says. And the Lord God arranged for a leafy plant to grow there and soon it spread its broad leaves over Jonah's head, shading him from the sun. And this eased his ra, his discomfort. And Jonah was very grateful for the plant. See, this plant saved Jonah from his ra, from his disaster, from his discomfort, in just the same way that God saved the Ninevites from their ra, from their destruction. This plant was an act of grace. It was God's grace sparing him from ra. So in this mini parable within a parable, Jonah is in the place of Nineveh. And this plant represents the grace and the mercy of God, sparing Jonah from the Ra in the same way that he spared Nineveh. But what does God do to the plant next? What does he do to the plant? He sends a worm. He does to Jonah exactly what Jonah wants God to do to Nineveh. Withdraw your grace, let him burn. And so Jonah is scorched in the hot sun. When he complains, God asks him, is it right for you to be angry about this? The same question he asked him before about Nineveh. This is such a masterful stroke because Jonah says he's angry enough to die because of the plant, but God puts it immediately into perspective. Verse 10 says, you feel sorry about the plant. Well, you did nothing to put it there. It came quickly and it died quickly. If I could paraphrase a bit, it's like God's saying, look, Jonah, you weren't the gardener in this situation. You didn't tend this plant. You didn't water this plant. But imagine how much more upset you'd be if you had. Jonah, I have been tending and watering and gardening Nineveh for years. Verse 11, it has more than 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness, not to mention all the animals. I've been longing for Nineveh to turn to me. My heart has been broken as I've contemplated the destruction, the Ra, that they are bringing on themselves the scorching heat they are feeling because of their wickedness. Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? And I think implied in that question, and shouldn't I rejoice that they turned their lives around the same way you rejoiced, Jonah, when that unexpected plant gave you shade? Is it really right for me to blast them with raw when you are this worked up about your own? Like I said, it's a parable within a parable. But we don't, we don't know what happens next. That's the end of the story. Literally, that question is just hanging there like a cliffhanger. That's how Jonah ends. Uh, people, the readers of this story, for thousands of years, think about this, for thousands of years, have been left wondering, does Jonah change his heart? Does he have a change of, 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 of mind, of, of heart? The Lord is merciful and compassionate, right? Slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. Does Jonah finally begin to realize how beautiful that truth is? Does he accept the grace of God for his enemies? Perhaps a more important question than that, do we? Do we? Right? People have been wondering about Jonah for thousands of years. We're wondering too. And I think we are meant to wonder, not just about him, but about us. Do we 
accept the grace of God for those that we want to burn? That is the question that, that this parable, this book of Jonah, wants us to wrestle with. <clears throat> Do we accept the grace of God for those we want to burn? Now, I think this is a very important question for us to ponder and chew on today, especially right now. As I, as I look around at the world we inhabit, right, 2022 America, I see us being conditioned, conditioned to hate and condemn those who are on the other side, right? Whatever that side is, we are being conditioned to hate and condemn. Long gone are the days of civil disagreement and, and, and polite dialogue. No, no, because hate sells. Hate sells, fear sells. The almighty algorithms, they know that, 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 that they dominate our lives and they know that Fear and hate and tribalism drives engagement. And what does engagement drive? Money. We are pawns being twisted and conditioned to hate. That's our life. They, they, whoever they happen to be out there, they are no longer just people with, with different opinions. No, no, they are existential threats to our democracy. They're, they're existential threats to the future of our church. Or maybe they're, 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 I don't know, monsters degrading the moral fabric of our society. That's what they are. Oh no, you know what they are? They're idiots. They are idiots who are so twisted in their selfishness that they deserve to be wiped off the face of the planet. Our world is full of Ninevites that are so easy to despise. That's the world we live in. And I know that's kind of bleak. It is bleak, but here's the deal. I've got some good news. I do, I've got some good news. And the good news is this. Our spiritual ancestors, the ones who handed down this story to us, our spiritual ancestors have dealt with the exact same problems. This isn't new. No, the Israelites hated the Ninevites. Right, the Jews hated the Gentiles, the Pharisees hated the tax collectors, on and on and on it went. And yet, from the very beginning, literally the beginning of the story, God's Holy Spirit has been consistently calling God's people to think differently, to demonstrate grace and not judgmentalism, to be the light of the world. Jesus calls us a city on a hill, right? We are shining out for, for, for the broken world around us to see and to recognize that there is another way to live. There's another way, defined not by hate, but by love. Defined not by judgment, but by mercy. There is another way. That is why our spiritual ancestors handed down the book of Jonah to us. From generation to generation, they wanted us to look at this parable with a cliffhanger ending because it was important to them and they think it's gonna be important to us. They wanted us to wrestle as they did with the unfathomable grace of our God. They wanted us to see our own judgmentalism in our day reflected in this rebellious prophet. They wanted us to hear, as Jonah heard, the questions that God would ask of our hearts. Is it really right for you to be angry about this? 
Shouldn't I have compassion on them? I think the book of Jonah is like a, it's like a family heirloom that has been passed down, entrusted to us for such a time as this. Will we take its message seriously? Well, I intend to. And I hope you do as well. I hope you do as well because just imagine with me, imagine if we got this right. Right, just use your imagination. Imagine if we, if Grace Church, if we became a people who reflected, who shone out the grace of our God to our world. Imagine if we were people who were, like our, like our God, if we were merciful and compassionate. Imagine if we were slow to get angry. Imagine if we were filled with unfailing love. Can you imagine that? Can you just, you, you picture that. We, picture if we were a shining city on a hill. Think of how much our world would change. Think of how much your family would change if this was how you lived. Think about your school, think about your workplace. How would our world change if we began to actually live this out? Especially now, especially at a time when our community is tearing itself apart at the seams. What if we were people who lived up to our name as people of grace, Grace Church? Well, guys, I believe this is possible. I would not be here if I didn't. I think it's possible because we have God's spirit within us. That's the, that's the game-changing thing that happened because of Christ. We now have God's spirit within us. We are not trying to do this on our own. The original readers of, of Jonah were, we're not. We're not doing this on our own. The same God of mercy and compassion from the book of Jonah is right here right here within us. And you know what he's doing through the power of his spirit? He is transforming us to, to look and think and act and behave and see the world like Jesus. That's what he's doing in us. That's what, what is happening in the hearts of those who have surrendered to him. That is what is happening. This story does not have to fall on deaf ears because God's spirit is teaching us how to listen. Praise God for that. So let's listen. Let's listen. What is God's spirit saying to us today? As we come to the end of this, this series on the book of Jonah, as we ponder and meditate and, and, and think about this cliffhanger of an ending of this story, I've been, I've been pondering, I've been meditating all week. I think there's a few challenges that God would have us think about few things that he wants us to be pondering and chewing on in our lives. And here's what I'm going to say. I've got three, three challenges. I think God's Spirit has one of these three challenges for you to think about. Something for you specifically to, to work on in your heart, to take with you into this week. And so in these next few moments, I just want you to listen. Ask God's Spirit to, to, to reveal to you what is it that he wants you to hear. Challenge number one. Acknowledge that God's ways are higher than your own. As we saw at the, uh, at the beginning of chapter four, Jonah's theology and, and, and his theology, his understanding of God was not aligning with God's actions. Maybe, maybe that's where you are. He thought God could be doing it better. You feel that way sometimes? Maybe 
when you think about God having grace and compassion for them, them, it just doesn't sit right with you. The fact that God loves them, it, it doesn't seem right or fair or just. Perhaps, like Jonah, you're being invited to acknowledge that you're not God. You're just not. We all try to be, we're not. That you are not the gardener of this unpredictable plant. God's ways are higher than your own. Maybe that's what the Spirit is trying to get you to pay attention to today. Simply an invitation to take your hands off the controls and say, God, you know better than I do. Maybe that's for you. Challenge number two, learn to love what God loves. When Jonah was sitting in his little flimsy shelter looking down at Nineveh, you know what he saw? He saw a seething cesspool of, of corruption and evil, a, a community of people worthy of hate. But when God looked at Nineveh, what did he see? 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness, not to mention all the animals. You know what he saw? He saw life. Life that he created. Humans who were made in his image, who were being destroyed by their own evil. God loved the people of Nineveh, which is why he rejoiced when they turned around. Whoever your enemies are in this life, those people who are destroying everything, if God loves them, if he longs for them to, to come back to him, can you start to do the same? You don't have to love their actions. You don't have to love what they stand for. But can you learn to love them? To long for them, to, to repent and be saved? Can that be your desire? Can that be your desire? Because it's his. Maybe that's what the Spirit wants you to wrestle with. Finally, there's this, challenge three. Remember God's grace for you. God's grace for you. From my perspective, Jonah's biggest blind spot in all of chapter four is his own story. It's his own story. Chapter one and two, we talked about that. It's all about Jonah's rejection of God and his own disobedience, how he earned for himself, right, a watery grave. He deserved to die. And yet, God rescued him from the deep. He brought him back to life, restored his calling. Why did God do that? Because of his grace. Because of his grace. Jonah's own story of redemption could have been enough. Maybe it should have been enough for him to expand the horizons of his own grace and begin extending it to Nineveh. Now that didn't happen in chapter four, but the cliffhanger ending there, it leaves open the possibility that it still could. Jonah might finally remember God's grace for him and begin to offer that grace to others. You know why I think Jonah ends with chapter four? Because you are the one writing chapter five. You are the one writing chapter five. Will you remember God's grace that he's shown to you? Think of your story. What has he saved you from? What has he, what has he rescued you from? What has he brought you through? What, what raw, what bad in your life has he forgiven? Has he made right? Has he healed? What's your story of grace? Remember that story. Remember God's grace for you. And maybe, just maybe, you'll start to, offer that same grace to others. 
If that's what the Holy Spirit wants you to wrestle with, then let's start wrestling. Let's pray. Father God, you've given us a lot, a lot to chew on as a community. I'm so grateful that you did. I'm grateful that, that, that the people of God, that your people have handed this story down to us from generation to generation. And I'm grateful it's more than just about a story about a big fish, that you would be reaching to us, calling us to reflect your grace into our broken world at this time and in this day. Father, what a challenge, and yet what a hopeful possibility it is. As we imagine what we might look like, how we might shine more brightly in this community if we get this right. Father, I pray that you would move us down that path that your Holy Spirit would guide us, would correct us, would convict us, so that we as a church can live up to our name, that we could be people who reflect your compassion and love and grace to our broken and dying world. Would you give us that strength? Would you give us that humility as we continue to write chapter five? I pray all this in the name of Jesus, who showed us the way. Amen.